0: good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of the package tourist hosted by yours truly the package tourist and the magical mystery tour called life matthew Debiaz. tonight's guest is novelist brian riley brian lives in hartsdale new york and works as a management executive for esm he is also a member of the board of directors for funda vita a nonprofit organization devoted to helping and empowering young people from Costa Rica to overcome the problems of Costa Rican society and to break free as human beings. Last November, Brian published his first book, The Last Original Ranger of New York. Brian, welcome to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you here. I'd like to start off by asking you, what led you to write a novel about the 1926-1927 New York Rangers?
1: Matthew, thanks for having me on the show. It's it's really my honor, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful. Thank you. Uh, the simple answer is I discovered there's a part of Ranger history that most people don't know. Uh, the 100th anniversary is two years away in 2026, and a few years ago, um, I discovered the original team of the Rangers, which remarkable cast of characters, guys that Any sports fan would immediately latch on to and relate to today Uh, and I realized that the vast majority of of fans have completely forgotten these guys they're not really recognized and not really honored today but these guys built the foundation for an organization that uh, like I said in two years is gonna be celebrating its 100th anniversary And, and when that happens I would love it if Ranger fans uh, were celebrating the people and not just the franchise, but understood who those guys were that that built that team.
0: But i it but, it, but it's interesting though you 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 it's, you write a novel though, but why not a nonfiction book?
1: Yeah, I struggled with that. Uh, that was a tough decision for me. And in, in life, uh, I only read almost exclusively nonfiction. Mm. Uh, it is very rare that I pick up a book of fiction, and as I started doing the research here and started discovering uh, a lot of this say, secret history that has just been ignored, forgotten. And, And I wanted to bring it out and I really wanted to give Ranger fans that gift of recreating that first season as best as I could. And I found that as I started working it in my mind and started putting words on pages, that I didn't want the story to be about scores and Mm -hmm. goals and assists and, you know, penalties and things like that. What I wanted to do is make it alive. I wanted to bring the players alive. I wanted to give them dialogue. I wanted to, I wanted to bring the reader onto the ice, onto the bench, Mm -hmm. into the locker room, Mm -hmm. into the speakeasies that the players were, (laughs) were experiencing at the time. You know, so I'm, I'm, Fortune. one of the things that kind of influenced that decision is that as an adult <laughs> not as a kid But as an adult I learned to play hockey myself uh-huh. and I still play I'm, I'm 59 and I still play uh, regularly and So I realized that I have a little bit of an advantage that I can bring Sort of that perspective of what it's like as a player and bring that onto the ice you know as you're jumping over the boards and, and picking up on the action you know, that's something that that I really tried to convey to the reader. But more than anything, uh, Matthew, it was the idea that I wanted these players to be real people. I wanted to really make them people that uh, that that the reader can relate to. So when I wrote the book, uh, even though I'm describing it very much as as a passion, as a Ranger fan, I really wrote the book as historical fiction. So the idea is that pretty much anybody can read this book. Uh, it's not just exclusively, by any means, for, for hockey fans or even Ranger fans. The idea was that anybody could pick up this book and enjoy it because the characters are, hopefully, they find the characters rich, the story engaging, and, and, and get enthralled in it, uh, just as they would for any other, you know, hopefully good historical fiction novel.
0: Okay. Now, please tell our listeners about the main character in a novel, Murray Murdoch. What position yes. did he play? Was he a shooter and scorer or was he more of a playmaker? What was he like as a player?
1: Sure, uh, Murray was a gift, really probably the single biggest reason why I decided to write this as, as, as fiction. Uh, Murray, a real person, um, and he was always throughout his entire career, uh, a second line left winger, okay? He was never the star of the team, but that said, uh, as I started going through each of the players on that team, don't forget, there weren't many back then. Those teams only had like you know, thirteen guys on them, yeah. right? So, you know, were a lot of, you know, there weren't a lot of shifts going on there. That was, you know, basically you had three, you know, you had your, your three starting forwards and your two defensemen, and they played most of the game. The backups really only hopped in when the starters needed a rest. Yeah. So they, and so so Murray uh jumped out at me for a few reasons as i started going through the roster uh because i had never heard of his name honestly had no idea who murray murdoch was but there were four things that jumped out at me the first one was probably the least significant but it made him stand out and that was he went to college went to the university of manitoba and he was an accounting major Mm -hmm. and i just was like wow that's not something you see as you're doing research on hockey players so i kind of looked at him a little bit more carefully and because of that, I, I realized very quickly that he was the Iron Man of hockey. And what I mean by that is he was the Lou Gehrig of the day. Uh, he never missed a single game in his career with the Rangers. He only played with the Rangers, and he never missed a game. He wow. was – when you ask me what kind of player he was, that's what kind of player he was. He was yeah. a guy that would go out there, he would grind, he would make a play, he would score a goal, he would make a great pass but he was, he was the guy that didn't quit. He was the guy that kept going out there and and he developed a great relationship with the, the coach of the team, Lester Patrick, because Lester I found a great quote telling him, hey, uh, I'm sending you out there right now because I needed someone out there who's going to do the right thing with the puck. Mm-hmm. So he was that kind of player. And so those two things, I mean, if that didn't seal it enough, <laughs> Matthew, the, the next couple of things certainly did. and. And the third thing I discovered about him was that he lived until he was 96 years old. He was the last original ranger of New York. Of course, that's the title of my novel. So he was, as soon as I I realized this, and I'm not particularly good at math, but it, it wasn't too hard to figure out, that he didn't die until 2001, which meant that he's the only person alive, who saw all four of the Rangers Stanley Cup victories, two of which he won as player, <laughs> and But he was alive for all four of them and the only person who was. Yeah. The last clincher is that in life, he's a distant relative of Marc Messier through marriage. He and Marc uh, knew each other, knew each other obviously. Uh, and uh, Marie's wife, Marie, who's a central character in my story, uh, is a relative of Marc Messier's and that as soon as I heard that, Matthew, I was like, no, come on, I'm, <laughs> I've am i got to explore this and I've got to, you know, I, I mean, I'm literally tying Mark Messier himself uh, to family, to the birth of the New York Rangers. I mean, yeah. he's already one of our legends, <laughs> one of our, yeah. our hockey guys as a New York Ranger fan. And here I am literally tying him by heritage to the birth of the team, to, to one of the very first players. Yeah. So that- that's... That was my reasoning for, for Murray Murdoch. Uh, obviously, it wasn't a hard decision. Interestingly,
0: When you were doing this, because in the novel, there are scenes where there, he, he and Messier are talking to each other, reminiscing yeah. in the part. Yes. Did you ever reach out to Messier and ask him, did he actually ever have a true live interaction with Murdoch face to face? Yes. Did it ever so, really
1: happen? Well, the, the, the story that I created is truly fiction. The idea that two of them went to a pond, Murray at ninety years old in 1994, a few months before the Rangers go on to win the Stanley Cup, uh, and Murray regales Mark with tales of their first year—that is truly a work of my imagination, fiction. Okay. But no, they absolutely knew each other in life. Uh, in fact, when when Mark uh, was made the captain of the Rangers, uh, that first Ranger game that he he played as captain. Uh, there was a number of old time Rangers on the ice for the pregame ceremony. Uh, and to introduce Mark to the crowd as captain of the Rangers that first year he came to the team. Wow. And Murray was one of the guys out there on the ice at, at 87 years old. I'm sure he was by far the oldest guy out there. But you had all the classic greats out there. You had, you know, you know all the great Rangers were there, but Murray was with them. And he was probably about 87 years old when that happened. And they knew each other in life. And when I reached out to uh, Mark um, through his agent, who also happens to be his brother-in-law, and I told his agent uh, what I was in the process of doing, that I had written the first couple drafts and I really wanted to get Mark's feedback, uh, the, the first response that, that his agent, his brother-in-law had for me was, Oh my God, you're writing about Murray. That's great. Wow. <laughs> he he didn't get anywhere near enough attention. <laughs> wow. So that was, that was really sweet. Uh, you know, I would, obviously Mark is an extraordinarily busy guy. Uh, I tried my best to, you know, to, to, <laughs> to, to work with his schedule and, and to give him as much time as he needed. But, uh, you know, he's a busy guy. And oh, yeah. so I was grateful for what I got, but would have loved more. And, uh, but, Hopefully, as, as time goes on, um, you know, we'll, we'll work on that a little bit. Yeah.
0: Now, when you were writing the novel, how hard was it to create the atmospherics of the old Madison Square Garden? And I like to tell our listeners, this is not the modern day Madison Square Garden. Back then, nearly 100 years ago, this was a different Madison Square Garden in a different locale. And also, uh, Brian, what was it like being an NHL player during the salad days of the oh. National Hockey League?
1: So to answer the first part of your question, uh, recreating the the atmosphere of it, not just Madison Square Garden, but also the city of Manhattan or uh, Grand Central Terminal or Penn Station or the speakeasies uh, that the players would visit, I can't tell you how much fun I had doing the research for that. That was really a, a joy, and going back and reading about the old Garden and was, you know it's really well documented uh, and you know, there were scenes that would just bring it to life for me, where they would talk about how the old garden's ventilation was so poor. Yeah. And of course, smoking in the building was so prevalent back then yeah. that the garden was known for having this blue haze, this frequent, if not constant, blue haze. Yeah. Uh, during every game that was obviously made up of cigarette and cigar smoke, and it would it would rise and fall down to the ice during the game as the temperature of the building... know got more humid and you know that just created you know a visual for me that it's like wow that's that's fantastic so I had I really was very fortunate that I was able to find a lot of first-person accounts um, you know on on that type of stuff and I also did a tremendous amount of research at the New York Public Library and really came across things that I don't know that any researcher had I mean that's kind of where I really got the idea from I, I went into there and asked to look at the old microfilm, to look at the old, I, I wanted to look at the old newspapers and so it says all microfilm. So they yeah. took me down. I started going through the microfilms and they were handing me these boxes and I realized that they'd never been opened, Matt. No <laughs> one had ever opened these boxes. I was the first person to be doing it. And I just thought to myself, my God, what about all the hockey researchers and hockey writers that are out there and none of them have come to this library, the New York public library, and opened up these microfilm and read game by game by game uh, from every local newspaper that there was at the time to sort of help me recreate that environment and help me recreate those games. And that again was something that made me want to write this as fiction because some of those articles were pretty sparse. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean the writing the writing wasn't like it was today, and they didn't have the real estate uh, that that we have today. Yeah. So you know, I might have had an article telling me the Rangers won the game, you know, three to one, and, you know, it, it may not have been a whole lot more than, yeah. a, you know, Captain Bill Cook scored a goal in the second period and uh, Ching Johnson, you know, uh, got into a fight in the third period. I mean, sometimes there weren't much more than just that. So I had to take everything I could and make that fascinating make it interesting. And then to make every game different, right. I mean, I wanted to recreate the season, but the last thing I want is for every game, to be boring, you know, yeah, yeah. So, I, I for me, I had to make each game about character development that was and and the, and the rivalry or the conflict between certain players on another team, like in Eddie Shore for the Boston Bruins, he yeah. was a great protagonist for me. I'm sorry, not a protagonist, but an antagonist for me because, uh, you know, he, I mean, his history wrote itself, right? I mean, yeah. he was probably the most violent guy. So, that brings me to the the next part what was it like during the players during that time for them to be playing this was this was not a game for the faint of heart this was not a game for children to watch yeah. uh, it was it was a violent affair they had minimal equipment obviously no helmets or, or mouth guards of anything of the sort and you know teams pretty much only carried one goalie yeah so, and they didn't have a mask and if they got hit Uh, In the face, you know, they went off and got stitched up and went right back in again. So it was a very, very violent game, and I try really hard uh, to depict that in an honest way uh, throughout the book. uh, Because it it is part of the drama and the conflict throughout the story was, you know, the conditions under which these guys were, were battling and playing, yeah.
0: Okay. Let's talk about yourself now, Brian. Where were you born and raised, and what schools did you attend?
1: Sure. I um, was born in Spring, New York, uh, and sort of been making my way down the Hudson a little bit at a time ever since then. Um, And uh, I I graduated from Yorktown High School um, and then went to college uh, just outside Rochester at Brockport. And, uh, yeah, so I was very fortunate. Right after college, I got a job. Uh, with a, a friend of mine who had started a business in the basement of his house. And over the course of the years, it became a, a real company uh, called Photofa. We were a licensee of all the professional sports leagues, including the NHL. And we manufactured licensed sports photography for all the players and all the teams and leagues uh, for over over three decades. So it was it was a great career. It was a wonderful job and really allowed me to have sports. Uh, Sort of the access and contacts that sort of helped me when I went to start writing and working on this novel as well.
0: Who was your favorite hockey player when you were growing
1: up? So I, I as a kid, as a young kid now, I didn't, I wasn't into hockey at all. My family was into baseball and, and football, um, but you know in the 1960s, 70s, uh, it was not realistic to be watching hockey on TV. Uh, it really, wasn't really available for most people and it wasn't for me and and no one in my family really followed it so hockey came kind of later when I was at college I had a roommate uh, Mark who's big Ranger fan and I'm a huge Chicago Cub fan and we both kind of live in misery right neither of us have had much success for a very very long time and uh, you know being in school up in Rochester Buffalo's not that far away and so when Mark wanted to go catch the Rangers when they were in town you know, I had a car and we would drive off. He would buy the ticket and, you know, we'd go catch a game. And uh, that's when I first started becoming interested uh, in hockey and specifically the Rangers. And then, of course, once I started working uh, in my career, we were licensed to the NHL and the Players Association. And, well, that was it. I was off to the races. And then when my son was born, uh, a few years after that, he started playing hockey. And I said, you know what? I'd like to learn how to lace up too. So that really started my passion with the game itself. And, uh, like I said, I hope I can keep playing for, for several more years.
0: Brian, please tell our listeners, where can readers find this book?
1: Uh, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, it, again, the title of the novel is the last original Ranger of New York by Brian Riley and Amazon, uh, has been fantastic. They've been really great at helping me market it and, and, uh, out there so it's been it's been doing really well on, on Amazon especially yep
0: okay Brian what do you have any idea what your next book project will be and when can we expect its release?
1: <laughs> I do, I do feel pretty confident that I have I have more books in me I do feel that way. Uh, so right now obviously I'm trying to market the heck out of this current book. Um, I self published it It's very hard these days to find a publisher so I, I published it myself which was great, and I love the learning curve that went with that, but it also means that I'm marketing it on my own as well. So for the next couple of years, as we're getting to that 100th anniversary, I'm gonna be spending a lot of time uh, doing what I can to to get it into the hands of of readers. Uh, That said, I am working on another novel, but not related to sports at all. It's about a Civil War soldier, a Union soldier, who has suffered a, a terrible injury in Georgia. And it's about his journey uh, back home and uh, a journey of healing and, and uh, Coming to terms with what he just experienced during the Civil War and trying to make sense of it all uh, as, as a soldier might try to do and uh, wow. so that's that's what I'm working on On the side after I work on marketing marketing this book.
0: Yeah, let me know when it comes out I want you on my show again. Okay. I, I'd be happy to believe me it would be a, a real privilege. It yeah. really would because I'm a Civil War nut too, <laughs> okay. Um, Brian, uh, whenever I interview an author, I always love to ask the standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them light the spark inside of you to become a writer or perhaps influence your writing style?
1: Wow, that is fantastic. Uh, so, huh. so uh, private thing. Growing up as a kid, reading and writing for me, at a very young age, was very difficult. Uh, it did not come easy for me at all. And so as I got into to um, middle school and we started doing required readings and things like that, my gosh, this was the most boring thing I could have imagined. Uh, I was trying to read The Outsiders or trying to read To Kill a Mockingbird, or things like that. I mean, I, I just, I, I couldn't get into it. And one day, a, a teacher of mine, recognizing this, uh, I am, my gosh, I just I just remembered it, handed me a book, and I believe the author was Robert Ludlum. Uh, and I think it was a book that he wrote even before The Born Identity, which is kind of a popular movie uh, that came out later. Yeah. But it was a book before The Born Identity. And it was the first time I ever tried to read uh, fiction and really got sucked into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like reading a James Bond novel, right? I mean, you just got oh. sucked in as a, as a young reader started uh, non-stop for forever since then I've been reading a voracious reader Uh, and and at some point it evolved from reading fiction of of that elk uh, to nonfiction and you know specifically history and biographies and politics and science uh, you know things that I'm really passionate about and care a lot about including the American Civil War Uh, so you know Honestly, it was probably that teacher handing me uh, a hardcover book of Robert Ludlum and telling me, go read this, uh, that started my, my passion for it. Uh, so, wow, yeah, thanks for, for allowing me to relive that memory uh, just now <laughs> live with you on the phone. That was really, really wonderful.
0: Getting back to the novel, when you were doing your research, did you talk to any members of the Patrick family while writing this book? I- Craig Patrick, uh, Lester's grandson. Did you reach out to the Patrick estate?
1: So I would, <laughs> so I would love to con- to to, uh, to confess that while I think I did a fantastic job of researching this novel, if I say that the Rangers scored uh, a goal in the in the second period of the game, and this person scored it. At, you know that happens. Everything that happens in the game. In terms of the scores and and all that is absolutely factually correct Uh, what I also discovered is that I am a terrible private investigator I I tried to reach out to everybody and failed horribly at connecting with people uh, to get them to talk with me or to to even get a, a any sort of correspondence going I actually reached out to Murray's daughter so Murray and his wife Marie had one child Joan and at She's in, she was in her 90s when i tried to reach out to her and she was living in south carolina where uh where murray himself had passed away he went to live with her uh, when he was when he was nearing the end and that's where he where he passed away and she she remained down there and, and as far as i know she may still be alive but i've never been able to find an obituary or anything else so my mother moved not far from where joan was living i had joan's address i had her phone number i had her email I I tried everything and couldn't get a response recognizing she's 90 something plus years old. So when my mother moved down there a couple years ago, first thing I did was I got in the car and drove to her house and unfortunately, she lived in a in a gated community. I couldn't get in. And I, but I was speaking to the guy at the gate, and I was explaining who she was and why I wanted to talk with her. And he looked at me like I had two heads, and he's like, "I have no idea what you're referring to." Yeah. So again, I am not at all pretending to be a private investigator. I I <laughs> I can tell you, I did a lot of research for this novel, and I feel really confident about the, what I put in there, um, especially when it came to their personalities and. And trying to get the characters right and true to who they really were, um, and certainly to, to the games. But man, I really wish <laughs> I really wish I had some investigative skills under my belt. That's for sure. As far as a private investigator, that would have been nice. But I did have contact with one of the players' uh, relatives, uh, Taffy Abel, uh, who has his own story in the novel and who has a secret. Played his whole career uh, with a secret. secret uh, that he revealed after his playing days were over. So that was something that that I leaned in the book very heavily on uh, and uh, was able to reach out and connect with one of his older relatives, uh, um, but he never met Pathy in life either. So he was helpful and, and we talked for quite a while, but really wasn't giving me you know, what I really needed in terms of uh, sort of firsthand account type stuff. Um, Getting,
0: yeah. getting back to Murray Murdoch, last question, do you consider him the unsung hero of that Rangers team during that season and basically throughout his Rangers career? Would you call him the unsung hero of that Rangers team?
1: So I would love to say that uh, yes, definitely, but I would also say that the, 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 the stars of that team, Bill Cook, Bunny Cook, Frankie Boucher, Chin Johnson, Paty Abel, these guys, the, the five starters and the goalie, uh, these guys are all in the hockey hall of fame. Okay, they they three of those guys won two cups with the Stanley Cup, and and Frankie Boucher, who was a center for the Rangers, and Lester Patrick, who was the manager of the team, their name is on three Stanley Cups with the New York Rangers. Yep. None of these guys are hanging on banners from the rafters of Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. I I don't understand how that's possible. They're they're in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and each one of those guys has won two cups with the Rangers. Now Murray, in all fairness, Murray is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame, but obviously a key part of the team, a key you know a key ingredient of that squad, and was for 13 years. But the, but the five guys uh, that I just mentioned. It's hard for me to understand how their names and numbers are not hanging from the rafters. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Yeah. So that so Ranger fans uh, specifically could identify with those players. And when we do celebrate the 100th anniversary, it's not just the franchise we're celebrating, but the guys that, that laid the foundation. Uh, because, you know, Matthew, not every hockey team has survived, not every the hockey team in New York has survived. Yeah. Uh, this whole period of time there was another team playing in madison square garden when the rangers got there yeah they, they were there for a couple of decades and they didn't survive yeah. why did the rangers and the americans the new york americans did not survive yeah and and my feeling is is that a lot of it had to do with lester patrick and that original squad and the fact that that team won two stanley cups with that original core of players yeah. and those guys have been been forgotten and And I don't want to see that happen anymore. I want to see with the 100th anniversary coming up, this is it. This is our opportunity to give those guys some the credit they they were due.
0: Brian, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. And again, when you come out with your next book, please let me know. I want you on my show,
1: okay? Thank you, Matthew. It would really be an honor to to be invited back on here again. It was really a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to hearing your future podcasts as well.
0: Thank you very much, Brian. You take care. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show, where I will be interviewing legendary baseball author Peter Goldenbach. Thank you and good night.